Well, here we are again with SCI Care, What Really Matters. And I'm delighted today to be interviewing Professor Charles Tatel. I'm Ruth Marshall, and the president of the International Spinal Cord Society. I am thoroughly enjoying hosting this series. I'm getting to speak to friends and colleagues and asking questions I've always wanted to ask. I personally am finding out so much in each episode. And if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, please do have a listen. Today's guest will give this year's Gutmann Lecture at the 60th anniversary annual scientific meeting, which is being held on Vancouver time. Hi, Charles. It's a long time since we've met in person. And I know that you had the great honour of meeting Sir Ludwig Gutmann. So I can't wait to hear all about this when you speak about him at the conference. For those who don't know Charles, he trained as a neurosurgeon and neuropathologist and was the first Dan Chair of Neurosurgery at the University of Toronto. He's speaking to us today from a couple of hundred kilometres north of Toronto at his holiday house. So a bit more about our speaker. Charles headed neurosurgery at the Toronto Western Hospital and was founder of Think First Canada, a national brain and spinal cord injury prevention foundation, and Parachute Canada, a national injury prevention agency. He has held two research chairs and invented the clip compression injury model of the rodent spinal cord, the first small animal model. And he initiated the Staskus trials of early spinal cord decompression in SCI patients. He's won huge numbers of awards, including being made an officer of the Order of Canada, which for those in Britain is a bit like getting the OBE. He's an inductee of the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame and the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame. And despite his age, which we won't mention, he is still actively researching in and writing about catastrophic injury and how it can be improved. Charles, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. I think I first met you properly when I visited your lab, and I can't even think how many years ago, but I think it was over 25 years ago. So it's a long time ago. And I remember you introduced me to Michael Failings at the time, and Mike and I remain friends. So thank you for that. In fact, I think you got Mike to show me around the lab. So I'm really interested to know, because I'm often interested to know how people get into the areas of medicine that they get onto. So what led you to neurosurgery, neurotrauma, neurotrauma research? Yeah. Good morning, Ruth, and it's my pleasure to speak to you, to reminisce about um, my career in 
uh, neurosurgery and in spinal cord injury. And I suppose my initial interest was fostered by two people. One was the professor of neurosurgery, Harry Botterell, who accepted me as a trainee into the neurosurgery program in about 1960, believe it or not. Shortly after that, I met Albin Juice, who I'm not sure if you ever met Dr. Juice. He was, he was one of my heroes because he made such a huge contribution to the uh, lives of spinal cord injured people. He and Harry Botterill started Canada's first dedicated hospital for spinal cord injury. And as a medical student, we were assigned to that hospital for a few days during our training. And I was just blown away with the dedication and the intensity of clinical management of people who needed our help. It was so inspiring to watch these two people who knew so much about spinal cord injury. So they certainly started the ball rolling for me. And as I said, one was a neurosurgeon and the other was a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist. And they were just a marvelous team. And I think that's the other aspect of spinal cord injury that always appealed to me, that you weren't alone. You had people uh, who worked as a team. And the team included a huge number of disciplines. It was so multidisciplinary. And in fact, that aspect of spinal cord injury has grown over the years. With spinal cord injury, you're always working as a member of a team. Nurses make a huge contribution. Uh, and occupational therapists, physiotherapists, urologists, etc. So it's intensely collaborative and you can't do it alone. The spinal cord injury requires a team approach and the fact that we had our own hospital for spinal cord injury way back in the 60s was impressive and it was called Lindhurst Hospital and that has gradually grown and it's still growing. It's still a major hospital to which many of my patients go to for further care. It's part of the chain of care in spinal cord injury. So it's lasted, you know, all these years that I've been involved with it, and it's still doing marvelous work. And that aspect of spinal cord injuries still turns me on. I saw a lovely quote today and what you're saying, I think, embodies that. And that was that being part of a team and feeling support from your teammates is one of the best feelings. And for us working in spinal cord injury, I think it's working together to empower our patients 
to regain their independent lives after they've been through often a tunnel of darkness that we can empathise with and help them through. And then we continue to have relationships with the patients, often for the rest of their lives, if not for the rest of ours, just because they themselves are part of that team and the team stays together long after the patient has left the acute care and inpatient rehabilitation, but we still have ongoing relationships. So I really feel that that's what you're talking about as well, that collaboration of people who have different training and different skill sets, and together the skill set of the entire team is, is greater than just adding them up. I'm glad that you included the patient as part of that team. I've had the privilege of looking after some absolutely incredible people. And one that comes to mind very quickly is a woman whose name is Barbara Turnbull. I'm not sure if you know that name, but so Barbara was about 17 when she was working at a milk store, which is like an all day, all night, small store in a community. And she was working the night shift when four bandits robbed the store and shot her in the neck. And I was on duty that night at a hospital called Sunnybrook Hospital and looked after her. And the, the amazing thing was that she was like the general of her own army. She became the boss of the team. And she was so knowledgeable about the problems that faced her that she could run the show. And she did that for, well, she was injured when she was a teenager, as I mentioned, and she died at the age of about 53, but not entirely from her spinal cord injury, which was at C4, by the way. I forgot to mention that. The bullet that we removed from her spinal cord, actually, it was embedded in the bone, but the shattered bone was pressing on the spinal cord. That's why we decided to operate. And the other reason we decided to operate quickly was because she could breathe at the scene of the trauma. The, the paramedics who picked her up found that she was still breathing, but by the time she got to the hospital, she had stopped breathing. So that piece of information, that piece of information that was passed on led us to operate on her because if she could breathe even after the bullet was there, we felt that let's try to at least restore her breathing. And lo and behold, that's what happened. After about a month post-op, she started to breathe again. So she did not need a respirator, but she was unable to move any of her limbs Etc. So she was complete, a complete spinal cord injury at C4, but she was the captain of the ship. 
initially I was her neurosurgeon, but ultimately I became her general practitioner. But she was the captain of the ship. She was able to run the show, hire her caregivers, determine when she needed to go to the hospital for a urinary tract infection or whatever other complications she encountered. But that's the ideal when the patient themselves can run the show. And that was a wonderful example. I'll never forget that. I'm privileged to have several patients who are like that. A woman who still has a trachea, she's not ventilated anymore, but and she's home with a round-the-clock care, which is a very busy businesswoman. And even when she was very unwell, once she'd got off the ventilator and out of the intensive care unit, she was the chair of several boards and she's continuing to do her board work in the hospital bed. You'd come in on a ward round and she'd have earphones plugged in and her laptop going. I'd say, okay, we'll come back a bit later <laughs> because she'd be at a board meeting. Um, and, you know, I think we really are privileged that we are able to go on this journey with people who continue on in their lives incredibly empowered. My, I still remember my first patient as the head of the spinal unit. I took the job on on the 5th of May, 1986. He was injured on the 2nd of May, 1986. He was a stockman at the abattoirs and a gate had hit at him and he'd fallen off the horse and he remains a complete C6. This guy had been a stockman. He didn't have great ambition. He became a self-taught painter, artist. He has exhibited at the Venice Biennale. He has been appointed as the South Australian of the Year some years ago. He has his own studio. This was a guy who's now in his 50s who never had any great ambition, but then turning around at the age, I think, of 22 and suddenly being paralysed changed his entire life. His first outing out of the spinal unit was with his then partner. They were both dressed up to the nines. He was wearing a tux. They went to the opera. They'd never been to the opera, but they went to the opera. I just see people change their lives. It's inspiring to uh, be part of that picture, to watch the growth um, and development of people like that. It's, it, it really is a wonderful experience. And I think it's what keeps us going, keeps mm -hmm. us wanting to work in this area. Did you ever meet Stuart Yesner? Yes, I did. I did meet Stuart. I'll never forget when he wheeled himself into my lab. And my lab in those days was in a tiny building next to Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. And he wrote to me to say that he wanted to come and see spinal cord injury laboratory and see what we do. I said, 
perfect. Um, always keen to have people come and visit my lab. And he didn't reveal that he was in a wheelchair. And there's a little bit of a ramp going into the lab and he refused to let me help him push his wheelchair up the ramp. And he made it on his own. And he spent about three hours in the lab watching us do our experiments. And it was amazing to watch him develop ISRT because he was the driving force for the International Spinal Research Trust, which is still going. And in fact, I just sent in an application to them for funding for spinal cord injury research. It must be now 50 years or so, or 45 years since Yesner rolled into my lab. And it's, it was an unforgettable experience. He was an unforgettable experience to meet. Uh, I think I first met him at the Perth meeting in 1988. And uh, yes, ISRT is still going and we still have ISRT uh, plenary presentations at our meetings. Yeah, it's wonderful. So what came first for you, being a doctor who was treating people with spinal cord injury, or was it the research? Very good question, and um, it's easily answered. The research came first. I originally wanted to be a psychiatrist, so I was fascinated always by the central nervous system but as I finished medical school it became clear that neurology and neurosurgery knew more about the workings of the nervous system than did the psychiatrists and that's where I wanted to spend my time in figuring out how the nerves work how the spinal cord works and so um, there was so I decided to become a neurosurgeon when the head of neurology indicated to me that he was completely uninterested in having me as a trainee. So neurosurgery was actually the third choice. So psychiatry was first, but I decided not to. And then neurology was second, and the boss of neurology decided not to proceed with that. And so neurosurgery was really the third and when I indicated I wanted to be a neurosurgeon, there was quite a bit of congestion in the program. Others wanted to be a neurosurgeon as well. So I was assigned to the lab. So I was actually assigned. It wasn't my, it wasn't my first choice to start off in research. So I started off in research and it happened to be brain tumor research, but but I trained as a neuropathology researcher. I don't claim to be a neuropathologist, but I do know a lot of neuropathology because I spent three years doing neuropathology research under some marvelous researchers who were fascinated in the same thing that I was, and that stuck with me. So 
I actually got my PhD before I trained in neurosurgery. And so my research interests were very early on, and I turned out to really love it. Um, You know, the thrill of finding something new has never left me. So I'm still, I'm still looking to make people walk again. And it hasn't quite happened yet, to as far as I'm concerned. But I'm hoping it will still happen. And I'd like to be the one to make that discovery. You know, I still haven't lost my investigative zeal. Um, yes. But um, the actual way in which the spinal cord deals with injury has always been amazing to me. And, I, and you mentioned I developed the first small animal model of spinal yeah. cord injury, which in fact is still used uh, in many labs around the world. It so, is. so that's been um, exciting to watch this happen. In fact, yesterday we had a lab meeting and we discussed our clips that aren't standing up the way they used to. They're, they're made by a jeweler. They're very delicate clips and they have to be made just right. And, and they're not being made quite as right as they should be? It takes each jeweler, because we've been making these clips now for about 40 or 50 years, and it takes each generation of jewelers time to figure out how to make them. But they eventually get it right and then we can use them and and um, use them to try to help people so that's still big on my agenda Um, Mm -hmm. the other thing that you mentioned which I want to talk about is injury prevention yes and I started Think First Canada fashioned after Think First USA which is still going as a injury prevention organization with spinal cord injury and brain injury as the main focus. And following that, it was Parachute Canada that we joined. So we joined forces with a couple of other injury prevention organizations to form an umbrella organization. But within that umbrella, brain and spinal cord injury prevention are still major issues and it continues to bother me so much about especially young people who are enjoying physical activity and then have a major spinal cord injury which is so disruptive and changes their life so i've spent quite a bit of time trying to prevent spinal cord injury and i still do I still feel that it's a very important um, thing for us as doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals. I think all healthcare professionals should take a role in trying to prevent injury, catastrophic injury. I, I can only agree with you. We need to prevent catastrophic injury and we need to prevent the long-term complications associated with injury 
if we can't stop the injury from happening. And there's lots of work to do in that area. So um, you're not the only one involved in preventive strategies and in really trying to encourage young people to be more careful. Um, we prevent injury. Yeah. We know that the improvements in um, getting people to hospital, getting people treated at the roadside improves outcomes. And one of the changes that I've seen in my career in spinal cord injury, which is not nearly as long as yours, a mere 40 years, is that um, we have many more people with incomplete injuries now. And I'm talking about the traumatic ones because the non-traumatic are a different group. But we have so many more patients who regain some function and good function, regain the ability to walk, not because of curative research, but simply because the treatment at the roadside, at the beach, has improved. I agree completely. That, that's part of our, our job to make sure that the chain of treatment, that every link in that chain is as knowledgeable as possible. And I, I think that's another great part of being in the spinal cord injury field is that it gives you an opportunity to do all that teaching. And just as you said, every person in the chain of people who encounter some of the spinal cord injury plays a huge role from the time they're picked up at the roadside or at the swimming pool or wherever the trauma occurred. Every person in the chain has a huge responsibility. And the more knowledgeable they are, the more they're going to be able to carry that out. And uh, we, have, we have come a long way. And I really agree completely with your connecting the dot that knowledge of, on the part of every person encountering a spinal cord injured person from the very first moment of the injury all the way along matters to how much neurological function can be preserved. Absolutely correct. But the other thing about prevention, I'm sure this is the case in Canada as well, is that so many people like Stuart Yesner at setting up ISRT, um, Neil Saxe here in Australia who passed away early this year, but who set up a lot of Australian research into eventually what was called the Neil Saxe Foundation. But, you know, a footballer injured in a football game as a professional footballer who went on to dedicate his life to research and then others who go and talk to kids in schools before they start driving about how important it is that they think about themselves and others when they get behind the wheel. Yeah, I think that so many of the people who have spinal cord injuries get really involved in teaching others how not to.
I think that's so true. It's when they speak in front of a group of high schoolers, I think it, it makes a huge uh, difference to every one of those people in the audience. Exactly. And when they come in, I have one patient who's a C4 complete tetraplegia, and he goes and he, he talks to my med students and he talks to school students and he comes in in his powered wheelchair with a array to get around. And he was in his mid-20s when he was injured and he talks to school kids and said, I was just having a nice time riding my motorbike and I hit a rock on a dirt road. And it makes them think because in my country, a lot of the kids spend their weekends and their holidays getting around on dune buggies and quad bikes and dirt bikes and all sorts of even motorized push bikes. And they are invincible. They believe they're invincible until something horrific occurs. And if they're lucky, they only break their leg. And of course, helmets are compulsory in my country, but doesn't mean that everybody wears them when they're out bush on a dirt bike. Yeah. So I, I, I think prevention, we have no choice, I think, but work across all fields, and that includes in prevention. Well, Australia has always been a leader in injury prevention. I remember visiting John Yeo. Is John still active? He's sort of retired, but he comes out to meetings. And I was a trainee in rehabilitation medicine when John was publishing his work about rugby. Yeah, he was a he was a pioneer and a great colleague of mine for over quite a length of time. And I visited him at the Royal North Shore, watched the hyperbaric oxygen work that he was doing and also the injury prevention work that he was uh, engaged in. And I think Australia has made a significant contribution in, in prevention, maybe not so much in rugby. I can't talk about rugby because having come from Sydney, I've lived in uh, South Australia for so long, there's very little rugby here. I do have uh, some patients who've been injured in rugby and other, patient, other patients who've been occasionally even somebody who's been injured in soccer. I've had people who've been injured in diving, riding horses. And then, of course, there are the older men in their 50s and 60s and 70s who are also invincible and climb ladders to clean the guttering of their house. Or, as I have a current patient, climbing a ladder against his fence to prune a tree for his neighbour, and he's now a tetra. A really active man, but 78-year-olds probably shouldn't be climbing ladders that yeah. aren't his foot slipped. Ladders and older men are incompatible. Yes, I agree with you. I'm pleased you're saying that. I'm going to tell my husband he's going to lose his ladder in the not-too-distant future, I think. 
So, yeah, so I think one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, though, because I, I think it's really important and it's something I think about often as the trainees and junior consultants come to me to talk through issues. You've encouraged many young doctors, young clinicians generally, to embark on research careers as well as their clinical work. And I think you mentor them. You encourage them along and you provide a sounding box. Am I right? I've always wanted to have other people follow the pathway of being a clinician scientist. We In Canada, we call them clinician scientists. I really like that term. Do you, we have do you... we call it too. And, yeah, I think we get to the science in various ways, but I don't think you can work in this area without understanding the science or trying to understand the science. But it's this mentorship that I think is is something that's important as well that allows, that encourages us to encourage others to do it. I've tried to figure out how to be a better mentor. I think that all of us should spend some time trying to influence people to have a dual career. Young people in medicine, for example, to have a dual career. Or if you're a physiotherapist, why not have a dual career in science plus clinical practice? So it's not just MDs, but all healthcare professionals, I think, are should be encouraged to think of a dual career because that's the way we advance. And it is incredible that medicine can advance still. Like right now we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the discovery of penicillin. So after 100 years, we're still very proud of it. Just say the father of one of the girls I went to school with, who was an ophthalmologist, but was a refugee from Hitler's Europe, was an ophthalmologist in Australia, and he had type 1 diabetes and was one of the first people in Europe to have insulin injections that saved his life. But in the 1960s, he started going blind. Oh, my goodness. Retrained as a psychiatrist. Oh, my goodness. Good for him. As his eyesight worsened, he could no longer read, and he had a group of people who read the psychiatric texts into a large tape. We didn't have a little tapes at the time, so that he could study his psychiatry. Yes. And the stories go on and on and on, don't they? The way medicine has changed. Uh, yeah, we're a little way off 100 years from the develop- discovery of penicillin, but insulin was a huge step. And I think, you know, the Frederick Banting, who made the discovery, is a good example of someone being both a clinician and a scientist. And when he went to the lab for the few years uh, to 
learn how to uh, extract insulin from the pancreas, he had around other scientists. And he, as a scientist himself, he could work with other scientists. I think that's important that, to have a team again, people who are pure scientists or pure clinicians, but in that team, there have to be people who can bridge that gap to make it work. I think there is an important role for clinician scientists. So part of the mentorship that I've tried to pursue definitely includes advocating for dual careers. Now, as, as in fact, Banting made the made the comment that invention, I think the, I've got it right, invention is 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. So that indicates it takes a lot of work to have a dual career. It's not something that appeals to, to everybody because the amount of work involved, you have to really be an a good clinician and a good scientist at the same time. So that means extra time and training and extra time in actually doing your work once you are trained. So it doesn't appeal to everybody, but it does appeal to quite a few. And you mentioned Michael Failings. I think he's, he is a superb example of a, a dual career. And if you needed to have an operation on your spine, and also someone you would want if you have a million dollars and you want to spend it wisely on spinal cord injury research, is he's a superb scientist and he's a superb clinician. He's operated on several people in my family, including my sister, who had a major spinal problem as she grew older and because of Michael, she would, became virtually pain-free and ambulatory, having been almost bedridden in such pain. Those people like Michael are there. They have to be encouraged. They have, it takes quite a bit to train a clinician scientist. And also the environment has to be right, because there are some environments that say, oh, no, no, we don't believe in that concept of being both. You, you either figure it out at the beginning, become a scientist or become a clinician. I, don't, I really don't buy that. I think that it's still a very important person who can bridge both and advance science and advance clinical care. So I try to lead by example and people like Michael are enthusiastic about that. I have one trainee with me right now who's in high school. She came to my lab when she was in high school and now she's halfway through neurosurgical training and halfway through her PhD. She's, a, she's one of these dualists that started in high school. You don't have to start in high school, but that's an example that these people come along and 
if we if we have our antenna are tuned into moving them along and most of them are so self-motivated that it doesn't require that much mentorship you're there when they need you i think that not everybody is cut out to be a scientist but and there are so many other areas in clinical work where you can have a dual career one of my best physios has stopped being a physio and is a leader in health policy. And there are quite a few of those around too. And I think that's part of mentorship as we go on in our careers is to help people decide where their duality is going to be, whether for them it is to do research, clinical research, or it is to do administration, or maybe look at the public health aspects, or just go straight into prevention. There are so many options. We're really lucky in the health professions. We don't need to just stick to one thing and get bored. And George Bedbrook, when I first was appointed as the head of the spinal unit in Adelaide, I like to say that I was about 15, but I was probably a little bit older than that. George rang me and told me that I was not to restrict myself to spinal cord injury, that I had to do something else, quite apart from running the department. And for some years, I worked in pain management as well, chronic pain unit, and did orthopaedic rehab until I could get other people to do those things. And I was far enough entrenched into spinal cord injury and spinal cord injury research and all the other things that I really didn't want to do the orthopedic rehab anymore. But I think it was wise words from George. And on the other side, I had um, John Yo and um, Richard Jones in Sydney providing me with the mentorship as a young consultant in Adelaide with no other consultant in spinal cord injury to provide me with sounding boards. And I think one of our roles as senior consultants as we get towards our, um, the days when we think about what we want to do when we, in inverted commas, retire, which really means I'm going to choose what I do and not do what I don't want to do. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned public policy as well, because it is very important to have some clinicians have that as a dual role, because uh, currently we depend so much on good public policy to, to be able to do the job we want to do as doctors and scientists. Public policy is, has become very important. It wasn't so important 25 years ago, but it definitely is important today. Wow. And, if, and COVID is teaching us even more about the need for public uh, policy and good preventative 
mechanisms. And one of the other podcasts I will be talking to Kalat uh, Kukins in um, Italy, uh, who was uh, running the spinal unit in Montecane, where they had a complete covered section of the hospital, and that has how that has changed her practice and how how many people she had who had spinal cord injuries and then caught COVID. That will be another interesting podcast. I'm really aware that I've taken up a lot of your time on a sunny summer's morning in Ontario, and it's getting towards my bedtime in Adelaide in South Australia. So I think we should leave it there, and we haven't really touched on anything I think that you were planning to talk about, but perhaps you were, uh, in your Goodman lecture. And I am so looking forward to he- hearing and watching uh, virtually your presentation. And I believe that you are a truly great recipient of the honour of being a Goodman lecturer and probably one of the last remaining possible Goodman presenters who actually knew Professor Sir Ludwig, otherwise known as Popper Goodman. And so, Charles, I, I thank you so much for your generosity and your time today talking to me, but also your generosity to all those patients and all those trainees who you have mentored and encouraged. Thank you, Ruth. It's been my pleasure to swap stories with you. And let's do it again tomorrow. That would be lovely. But just to recap for the listeners, I've been talking to this year's Gutman lecturer, Dr. Charles Tator, who is in Ontario, Canada. And I'm Ruth Marshall, the president of ISCOS and the host of these podcasts. We've talked about lots of things, about research, about mentorship, about how important it is to influence people to think more widely and than just a clinical career, to consider research or other options, and the importance also of working to prevent injury initially, to prevent trauma generally, and also to prevent secondary and tertiary injury after spinal cord injury. We've also talked about the friendships that we've been able to develop with our patients and how our patients inspire us in the work that we do. And I have been so grateful to be able to talk with Charles today. So thank you for being so open with me. And I look forward, and I know everybody else does, to your words of wisdom in the Goodman lecture at the end of September. 
So, listeners to our podcasts, this was podcast number six of our current series, and I'm sure you will agree it was another fabulous episode. As always, we would love to hear from you, and if you have any questions or suggestions, or particularly want to hear an interview from somebody else, please email them to admin at iscos.org.uk. I do hope that Charles and I see you at our 60th anniversary scientific annual meeting at the end of September and the beginning of October. All the details are in our show notes and it isn't too late to register. You can also find us on social media. Do follow us and join in the conversation. And if you're hearing this session for the first time, you can download our previous podcasts by logging on to your podcast prescriber and downloading SCI Care, What Really Matters. Until next time, thank you for listening and thank you, Charles. My pleasure. Thank you.